we come today to the end of uh, this sermon series we've called Collapse as we've been looking through and uh, journeying together through this book of, of Lamentations. The first three chapters of this book all ended with prayers to God. And this final chapter from beginning to end is, is one long prayer. And once again in this chapter we see this, this biblical pattern of lament that we've been exploring over the last several weeks. We, we find that lament always begins with a, a turning to God in the midst of a painful situation or, or difficult circumstances. Uh, lament continues with us honestly laying out our complaints before God, uh, telling Him what's going on with us. Then lament takes a turn toward asking God boldly for what we need in the midst of, of our distress. And, and finally, as we're going to see today, lament concludes in this place of a renewed trust in God, trusting Him perhaps in ways that we've never trusted Him before. And today I want you to see this, this sacred trust, and that's what I've called the message today, this sacred trust that's developed as suffering saints lean into God in the midst of their trials. How can we have even greater faith in the moments of our greatest frailty? Some have experienced that very thing, and it is certainly possible Lament is a big part of the pathway to getting us there. And so, again, as, as Pastor Mark Vrogop has, uh, has said, this thing of lament is it's a prayer in pain that leads to trust. That's been our definition that we've been exploring. And, and as we think about that, I want us to linger just a little longer. I know this hasn't been perhaps the most uplifting of sermon series we've ever, we've ever done, but I think it's so important for us as we consider how to walk through difficult days. And so let's linger just a little longer and, and see what God has for us in this final prayer in the book of Lamentations, chapter 5. In this prayer, we find three reasons to trust God when life gets hard. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Three reasons to trust God when life gets difficult. Uh, Pastor Stephen Smith said this closing prayer is not in any way a, a whiny hopelessness. In fact, it is exactly the opposite. The lament prayer, it calls out to God in the midst of suffering and asks God to act. That's what we're seeing this morning as this prayer concludes in Lamentations chapter 5. We're going to see there is this call upon God to act on our behalf in the midst of our distress. And so let's jump right in this morning. In verses 1 through 18 of what Grant just read for us a moment ago, uh, we see that we can trust God. This is the first point, that we can trust that He remembers our afflictions. Now, as we use the word remember in this biblical sense, I don't want you to think about how we often use uh, the word remember. One of uh, my favorite functions uh, on my phone is the reminder app. And the reason is because I'm very forgetful. In fact, I've encouraged many of you over the last several years, if you tell me something, uh, have me put that in my phone. That will be a good way for me to not to forget what you've told me, especially if you tell me in the midst of our Sunday morning gathering. I forget most everything that happens by the time we finish on Sunday morning. But this word, remember, that begins this chapter, when he says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us, does not speak of God's forgetfulness. It's not as if God was 
uh, unaware of the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 586 B.C. It's not as if he had forgotten the suffering of his people and all that they had lost. It's not that he was unaware of their distress. But this word remember, as it's used throughout Scripture, is actually a call to God to act on behalf of his people. It's, it's calling upon God to remember his covenant, his promises, his steadfastness and his faithfulness, and to act upon his own character and his own resources. But once again, as the writer here, Jeremiah, reminds the Lord, as he calls him to act, he lays out one final time all that they had lost. I'll just summarize these first 18 verses in this way. They had lost their fortunes and their families. They'd lost their freedom. Even their ability to gather food freely had been taken away. They had lost their festivals and and, and the places where joy had once abounded were now replaced with multiple funerals as they saw a good portion of their population wiped out by the Babylonians. Their joy had been replaced with mourning. Their prosperity had been replaced with poverty. Those who had once had so much now had so little. And that's where lament comes in to the picture. Once again, Jeremiah lays down the complaints of the people. God, we have lost everything. And that didn't that wasn't much of an overstatement for this people. They had very little left so while this suffering once again jeremiah reminds us and even the people of his day he reminds us that the reason for their suffering was twofold that they suffered as we sometimes do for the sins of others we see that in verse 7 as he talks about the sins of the fathers those foregone generations that had sinned against god and rebelled continually against god to the point that god finally brings judgment upon his own people but he also in verse 16 reminds them but it was also for your own sin there was a a statement in those days that that the the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge the picture of eating something sour and somebody else having to pay the price for that And, and and jeremiah says no that's not the fullness of the picture here yes The fathers rebelled against God and and there was a a sourness. There was a bitterness that came as a result of their rebellion. But their children walked in the same ways. We have a God who does not punish us for other people's sins, but we do receive punishment for our own. We are held accountable in a day in which we look around and we see a, a constant fleeing from accountability in our culture. No one wants to take responsibility for what they have done. It's constantly pushing it off on others. Well, it's my parents' fault because of the way they raised me or what they did or did not do for me. Or it's the the society's fault for not giving me these uh, opportunities to rise above. Or or it's my addiction's fault. We want to find all kinds of places to blame. And, And yet here we find in verse 16, Jeremiah saying, let's understand where the blame lies. The blame lies with us. We're the ones that rebelled against God. As we look at the brokenness in our world, we recognize in the same way that oftentimes we suffer because of other people's sins, but sometimes we suffer because of our own sins. And more often than not, we don't have the privilege that Jeremiah had of knowing exactly why our suffering has come. 
Why did we receive that diagnosis? Why did we lose our job? Why did we lose our home? Why has our, chil- our children uh, gone into rebellion? We don't know why these things happen exactly, but we do know that they come as a result of the sin that has ruptured the goodness of God's world. And so we can trust, once again, that he remembers our afflictions. As we think about this remembering, I want to show you some places in Scripture where it's, it's talked about God remembering. If we go back to Genesis chapter 8, we, we find that when Noah was there in the ark, you'll remember in those days that people were rampant in sin against the Lord, and God called Noah to build the ark, and he and his family were the only ones that went on board, even though there was more than enough room for others to join them. And as they were in the ark, as the floodwaters rose and the world was wiped out and they were the only ones that remained, it says in, in Genesis 8, 1, and God remembered Noah. Now, once again, this is not, oh, yeah, Noah, I forgot about that dude. That's not the picture. But it was that God was in that moment acting upon the promises he had made to Noah. That's what the remembering of God means. God remembered his promises to Noah and he acted upon them. A similar thing happens in the very next chapter when God promises to remember the covenant that he entered into with Noah. You can read that about that in Genesis chapter 9. We see it again in Genesis 19 with Abraham, this one who was called out to be the father of the Israelite people of the Jewish nation. He was called to leave his homeland and to go to a place he did not know, to a land that God was going to show to him. And along that journey, Abraham encountered some enemies. And some of those were the peoples of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, another very rebellious, sinful people infamous for their rebellion but abraham chooses to intercede for the people of sodom to pray for the people of sodom by the way church that is such a role for us in this day as we are living in a culture that is increasingly like the city of sodom our role is not to condemn but to intercede to pray and to ask God to bring revival, restoration, to restore what needs to be restored. And so in Genesis 19, Abraham is interceding and it says that the Lord remembered. What did he remember? He remembered his covenant with Abraham and he chose to act according to that covenant and thereby Abraham's nephew Lot was rescued. We see it in Genesis 30. Rachel who was barren, who had not been able to conceive for many long years. And then finally, God did open her womb and allowed her to bring forth a son who would ultimately prove to be the salvation of his family as Joseph would rise to prominence in Egypt and provide a way for their salvation. In Genesis 30, God remembered Rachel and it led to the salvation of his people. We see it in Exodus chapter 2 as the Israelites are now uh, having, having been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years that God once again remembered his people. He heard their groanings, Exodus chapter 2 says, and he remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Noah. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and he knew that he was about to make another covenant with Moses. And so God, in remembrance of his covenant, he chose to act once again on behalf of his people. And in those days, he raised up Moses is another deliverer for his people and we've said through this series there are two main markers in the history of old testament israel 
There's the exodus from Egypt, and there's the exile to Babylon. These are separated by about 900 years of history. And, and we find God remembering his people in those days of the exodus as he raises up Moses and he leads Moses to, to be the leader that will bring his people out of slavery. But we also find that in a much darker day, when Israel had been destroyed, when the people were suffering, perhaps as they had never suffered before, God remembered his people. In fact, he had already promised to remember them in Leviticus Chapter 26, God gave these words to Moses hundreds of years before what we're reading in the book of Lamentations. And he says, yet for all that, he's talking about days yet to come, when they are in the land of their enemies, because they've rebelled against me, when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. The covenant is the key to all of this. He said, I will not break my covenant for I am the Lord, their God. It's based in his covenant and in his character, who he is. But I will look at verse 45. I will for their sake, remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. So once again, the basis for God's remembering is his character. And his covenant. He has promised. And he is faithful to his word. And of course church. We now live under the new covenant. A new covenant that has. In every way improved upon. All the previous covenants. The the old covenant written on tablets of stone. Now this new covenant written on. Our hearts of flesh. Now no longer just God walking with his people. But God actually dwelling in his people. Great improvements upon the old covenant God has made. And yet the same God made all of these promises. His character has not changed. He is faithful to his word. And whatever you are walking through in these days, you can trust him. You can trust him to remember you in the midst of your affliction. Secondly, this morning, you can trust that he reigns over all. We have seen again and again and again in this book pictures of the sovereignty of God. It was by the sovereign hand of God that Jerusalem was destroyed. God had been long-suffering and patient for many, many generations as his people had continually rebelled against him. But eventually, God will come through on his promises of justice and judgment. And he does in Jeremiah's day. And it was a mournful day. And yet, that was not the end of the story. There was more to come. And God wants them to see it. And so in verse 19, we see another one of these but God moments after laying out in the first 18 verses all that they had endured. In verse 19, we see it again. But you, O Lord, I want you to think back on your life and I I pray that you have experienced some of those but God moments when God stepped in and did something that only God could do. And you have faith today because you can look back upon that moment and see there was that day of rescue when God stepped in as only God could step in and did what only God can do and proved himself faithful. And you find there a bedrock for your faith. And that's exactly what Jeremiah is reminding them of, that God has proven faithful and that he reigns forever. 
And so in verse 19, we see that God's sovereignty is a salve. It is a sweet medicine for his suffering saints. If you understand from the scriptures that nothing happens outside of the sovereign hand of God. Everything that comes into your life ultimately comes from his hand. Now, we can wrestle over that. We can have so much wrestling over that. And again, we we do not want to fall off the wrong end of the wagon here and lay some kind of moral blame upon God for the difficulties and the disasters that we incur. We remind ourselves once again that the moral responsibility lies with us because we're the ones that sinned against Him. We're the ones that have rebelled. But at the same time, God is sovereign. We see again and again in this book, it was God's hand that had brought about the destruction of Jerusalem because of the people's sins. Yes, He used the Babylonians. Yes, he used the famine and the sword, but ultimately it was he who was in control. And this ought to be for us great assurance. The sovereignty of God that has so often been despised and we have settled for lesser gods. We have made apologies for God in a way that has has lessened his sovereignty. That as we consider these things, we understand the sovereignty of God ought to be the sweetest truth for us. Because our God Almighty is in control. Things are not as out of control as they often appear. Walter Kaiser said God's eternal rule and reign is all our hope and stay. We sing that sometimes, don't we? During the bleak moments of suffering and despair, for every why the psalmist again and again would urge us to sing a thousand times over our God reigns. And so I would say to you today, I would say to you, whatever you're walking through during these days, whatever difficulty you're encountering, would you by faith speak over that? I know that my God reigns. His throne is a forever throne. His rule is a forever rule. And whatever I am encountering is only temporary in comparison with that. And you may suffer what you're suffering now to your very last day, and yet it will still be so temporary in comparison with the eternity that awaits. I'm beginning to get ahead of myself. Let me come back to the notes here for a moment. While God's sovereignty is a salve for his suffering saints, we also see in verse 20 there's this wrestling, this back and forth that we've seen so often. Kind of it looks like a, a bipolar moment going on here. The highest of heights and then the lowest of lows. One verse from one another. We see it again in verse 20. And it's a reminder of this, that God's sovereignty doesn't immediately solve our struggle. The sovereignty of God is a salve. It is a sweet medicine for us as we wrestle over the difficulties of life. But it doesn't immediately solve the struggle. It doesn't immediately do away with the wrestling. We don't just look at the hardest moments in our lives and go, oh, well, God's sovereign. It's all going to be good. It's not that kind of a picture. The wrestling remains. It's just that we know that our Redeemer lives. And He has walked upon the earth. And He has purchased salvation for us. And there is a done deal for those who have trusted in Jesus that cannot be overcome no matter what the circumstances of our lives may bring about. Hebrews chapter 1, speaking of the Son of God, says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's quoting from the Psalms here. The scepter of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This is the exaltation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. And, he, and the writer of Hebrews is exalting him and saying, in your most difficult moments, look to him. He is on his throne. He has endured suffering on your behalf. He has said it is finished. And you can trust him because of that. Finally, this morning, we can trust that he remembers our afflictions. We can trust that he reigns over all. And we can trust that our restoration is assured. There's a word of assurance that's given there in verse 21. It's, it's kind of interesting. The uh, Orthodox Jews still to this day will read Lamentations chapter 5 each year as they remember the destruction of Jerusalem. And yet when they read Lamentations chapter 5, they actually repeat verse 21. They leave off verse 22 altogether. Because you'll notice verse 22 doesn't leave you in the best place. It's like a cliffhanger. Like, really? Where's the pretty bow tied on the end? Where's the happily ever after? So they'll read verse 21 two times at the end to leave it on a more happy note. But verse 21 does remind us our renewal is dependent upon his power. Restore us, O Lord, that we may be restored. The implication is is this. There is no restoration apart from God. There is no fix apart from our Father. There is no solution apart from our Savior. And try as we might, we put our trust in so many things that will ultimately disappoint us. We put all of our trust in education. We put all of our trust in, in, in jobs that we can gain and, and houses that we can build and cars that we can drive. We put all of our trust in, in what our children will be able to accomplish with their lives. We put all of our trust in things that will ultimately sorely disappoint us because the restoration for which our hearts are longing can only be found with Him. And ultimately, he's promised it. Revelation 21, the very end of the story, we want to remind ourselves of where this is all going. The Apostle John saw these things as God pulled back the veil of heaven and allowed him to see that day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things will have passed away. There will be no more reason for lament in the last day. And he who was seated on the throne, he said, Behold, I am making all things new. I'm renewing all things from top to bottom, from beginning to end. I'm making all things new. And so he said to John, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he knew that we would be sitting here this morning and we would need these words. We need these assurances. We need these promises because life is hard. And yet I would say to us this morning, Hard is not necessarily bad. Sometimes hard is just hard. We automatically in this culture where we worship comfort and safety and security, we automatically equate hard with bad. And yet God is doing so much in the hard times of our lives. There is so much that he is accomplishing in the midst of our pain. 
There is so much He is doing in our suffering that cannot be accomplished in any other way. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? I know that because I look to the cross. And if God can take the greatest injustice that has ever been perpetrated on this planet and He can bring about this great salvation that is available to all of us through faith in the One who died for us, if God can take the cross and elevate that great injustice to the greatest example of His love and faithfulness, then most assuredly He can take those difficult things in our lives and He can do a similar work. If it's true of the greater, it's true of the lesser. And the greatest is the cross of Christ. So our renewal, our ultimate renewal, restoration and salvation is dependent upon the power of God. But it's also dependent upon the promises of God. And so again, Lamentations ends with no pretty bow. There's no happily ever after here. I mean, listen to how he ends this book. It's one of the biggest downers in history, perhaps. Restore us to yourself, O God, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Yes, let's end there, right? No, verse 22. Unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The back and forth that we have seen all throughout this book and that we experience in our lives moments of great faith followed by moments of great doubt, moments of immense joy, followed by moments of immense suffering, the back and forth of our lives, and then when things seem so uncertain, and yet, what ultimately is Jeremiah pointing us to? I believe he is ultimately pointing us to the certainty of God's promises. That word, unless there, is not saying, well, this might be true. Ultimately, I believe Jeremiah is reminding us of God's promise to never leave us or forsake us. That He will not remain exceedingly angry with us because His anger was poured out on His Son at the cross. He has promised to renew and restore. And so the unless here is really just calling us out from our place of faithlessness in the midst of our trials. Calling out from our our, our place of double-mindedness in the midst of our difficulties. It's calling us out and saying, remember the promises of God. Remember what He has promised to be and to do for you. And set that side by side with your suffering. That's what Paul does in Romans 8. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and man, you can read about Paul's list of sufferings. He had suffered so much for the cause of Christ to where he could say, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. He said, I consider, though, that the sufferings of this present time, they are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's what we must do, church. We're so tempted to look back to some kind of a golden age. We see that that mention of days of old, and we are so tempted at times to look back to what we consider to be brighter days. We watch, our, watch that happening on the national scale, but we are also so tempted to that place in our personal lives. And even in our corporate church setting, we can look back to days that seem to be better and brighter and we can begin to idolize those days when what he's calling us to ultimately is not just to look back to days of old, but to look forward to days anew. 
to look forward to the fact that God has promised that there are better days coming for the people of God. They may not come tomorrow. The morning may last for the night. But joy comes as the sun rises. And so we see here a reminder that Christ, our substitutionary sufferer, He has borne all of our sins in His body on the cross. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. And He is a living reminder that God has not forgotten us, no matter what our circumstances might indicate. He is the reigning King who is sovereign over every detail of our lives. And He is using all of them to make us more like Himself. We can trust that He is truly working all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And yet, still, unanswered questions remain. I love the fact that this book doesn't end with all of our questions and wanderings and strugglings tied up in a pretty bow. It leaves us with the reality that there are unanswered questions with which we still wrestle. And yet, and yet... Lamentations, I hope, has led us to be a little more okay with that. Because more than we need answers, we need Him. And He has promised that one day He will make all things new. We can trust Him because He's never failed to be faithful to His Word, never once. He's the only one who can redeem our sin-broken world. And so I want to encourage us today to compare our sufferings with our Savior. I think that's where this leads is compare your sufferings with your Savior. I want to encourage you to set your trials side by side with the truth of who He is and all that He has promised to do on your behalf. Now, This will not erase the struggle, but it will most certainly ease it. And I want to conclude today with the words of Ephesians chapter 3. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow together. Father, you are trustworthy. You are true. You are almighty. You are perfectly good in every way. And you have proven yourself faithful generation after generation. As we remember the words of the psalmist that one generation might commend your works to another. I pray that that might even be true here in our church this morning. That those who are farther along the path with you, having seen your faithfulness in their own lives, might give testimony to those younger and struggling. That we might remind one another of your faithfulness. That you will not forget us in our afflictions. That you are reigning over all in your sovereignty. And you have promised. You have promised to restore us, and you will be faithful to your word. 
And Lord, this morning we're coming to your table, a reminder of all that you've done for us, but also a reminder of all that you've promised to do. This, this table beckons us to look back to the cross, but also to look forward to the day when you will pull back the veil and we will see you reigning in all of your fullness. And on that day, the questions that we wrestle with now the struggles that we are currently experiencing, they will grow strangely dim. And we will see the light of your face. And we will know that it has all been worth it as we've sought to follow you by faith. So lead us to the table this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.